You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Our teaching text today is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. How are we doing? Good. Um, I just pray for our time. Spirit of divine wisdom, uh, we come to seek your face. You say that those who seek you will find you. Because you stand at the door and knock, waiting to come and dine with us. And you say that if we'll open the door to you, that you will come in and you will sit with us, you will abide with us, you will uh, commune with us. And that communion will bring forth much fruit. And so we take you at your word and lean in today into that promise. So would you move, Holy Spirit, among us, we pray. Amen. I, um, I've been doing a, a lot of thinking this week around this, this teaching today. We're in this series, The Good Word. We're essentially talking about the Bible. Uh, and I don't know how often you've maybe like just considered the Bible. Obviously, we do a lot of considering through the Bible uh, most Sundays here, every Sunday here. But I mean, like, have you considered the Bible as a as an object, as a, as a thing, as a as a book? Like, what exactly is this, and how am I supposed to relate to this thing? Um, like, how could these like sixty six books and and how could God be, like, confined between, like, leather-bound pages, you know? And what confounds me a little bit more about that is just how often words fail. Like, if you think about discourse, like, we never actually really say what we fully mean, and we never actually fully receive what someone intends to say to us. There's a this psychoanalyst who's French, Jacques Lacan, but he talks about uh, discourse, and he says this of discourse, which I find so true. He says, I always speak the truth, not the whole truth, because there's no way to say it all. Saying it all is literally impossible. Words fail. Yet it's through this very impossibility that the truth holds on to the real. Words fail, and yet we have this divine text full of words. 
So what does this mean of it? Does it fail? How do we relate to it? Today we're going to be talking about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, Ryan mentioned it last week, but you're going to hear more in the weeks to come. But starting the, uh, January 7th, we are going to begin a three-year, it's shaping up to be, narrative journey through the Scriptures. And I say narrative journey because we're going to be going through Genesis and Revelation, but not in like a this is what Genesis says and this is what Exodus says. No, we're going to be following it more like it's a story. We're going to follow this story all the way through. And the reason we're doing that is because oftentimes we just, we kind of go around and we, we pull out this truth here and we pull out this truth there. And it kind of gets disconnected from this whole wider thing. And I think, personally, that the best way to understand the Bible, the best way to relate to this sacred text, is as a story. Now, why do I think that? Well, words fail in part because words, if you really think about it, are, are artifacts or they're artifacts of experiences and thoughts. When I use words, I am contemplating an experience, I'm encapsulating an experience that I've either perceived or received, and I'm trying to share it with you, right? And the way that I get this experience into you is I, is I package up words that somehow mean that approximation of that experience, and I send it your way. But if you receive that, <clears throat> just for the words themselves, and if you don't actually look for what's underneath, you're going to miss my point. You're going to miss what I'm trying to say. And the good thing about stories is that stories help us keep that position. Stories, by their nature, have something underneath the words, right? <clears throat> so if I were to come and tell you, hey, <clears throat> I got to tell you about my day. Okay, so it was 55 degrees. I wore three layers. I walked 10,000 steps. You would be like, and <laughs> there's nothing underneath that, far as I can tell. Those are just facts. I thought you were going to tell me a story. So I think stories help us mine the gaps of discourse between what was meant, said, received, and understood. And more than that, stories help us enter the dance of communion. So when we tell stories, we are trying to relate to one another. I say tell me more because I want to enter your experience. I don't just want to know the facts of your day. I'm hoping that you've got something that exists underneath those facts that will draw us closer together. You with me? Uh, <clears throat> my wife and I, we all live through COVID, but uh, my wife and I, we we were like, oh my gosh, we have to like record a podcast or like write something about the stories that have happened during this time because like our grandkids, kids, like they won't know what this was like, right? We haven't done it yet because we're slackers, but, uh, <clears throat> but there have been all these stories, some of them that I've already forgot. There's this, <clears throat> there's this one story, so, around April, so we, you know, March, 
things started getting progressively worse. And we were like, okay, well, we're gonna like order groceries. And then that became harder, but we're like, there's no way we can step outside of this house because we will melt. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, the groceries would get delivered to the vestibule and we'd run out with our Clorox wipes and we'd, we'd, we'd clean our groceries. <laughs> Uh, and then we'd bring them inside, but then it started getting harder and harder to get our groceries delivered, and so we started getting more and more scared because we had this, he was like not even a year old, and so we were just like terrified, and so Catherine's dad uh, has uh, this place down uh, near the beaches of North Carolina, and so it was empty, no one was there, and we were like, I think I think we just need to go for a little bit, at least until we can like reliably like get groceries and not risk it and then we'll, we'll come back. Um, <clears throat> and so, but this is about the time, if you remember, that New York was like all over the news. Like it was like basically New York City, zombie apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> if you see a New Yorker, call your local authorities. Uh, <laughs> and so here we are driving, we're getting in a car and we've got these New York plates on the front and the back. Um, I'm terrified, and I have this plan. I'm like, okay, the year before, we had a family reunion, and we had hats that, were, that said Buford, Beaufort Boondoggle on it. And I was like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get in at night. I'm going to wear the hat. We'll stash the car. No one will know who we are. <laughs> Your name is Sally. I'm Warren. I don't know why we needed new names, but just in case. So we did. We, we went down south. We like snuck in under the cover of night. I like parked the car underneath in the back before any other cars. And her dad had a spare car there. So I became a Florida man. It had Florida plates on it. And I was like, never been so thankful. Uh, <laughs> and there was this one time, there was this one time, we were about there a month, but there was one time about a weekend where we're out for a walk with James, and, uh, and there are these people. And if you were to hear my wife tell the story, she would say something like this. If we were to record that podcast, she would say something to the effect that there were these people in the parking lot, and they saw us, and they asked us a question. They said, uh, like, what apartment are you guys, what, what condo are you in? And she got really scared because, I don't know, like maybe they heard of you guys, like maybe like they're on to us. You know, they're, they're checking like, hey, what are you guys doing here? They know that we don't belong. And she would talk about that fear that existed being a New Yorker and literally the town next to us had shut down. Like they positioned police so no one that didn't live in that town could go into it. And so that's kind of her version of that story was coming to those people and just kind of being like, oh, we live in, we're in 52 and yeah, hi, keep moving. Here's how I would tell that story. So we're walking. I'm a Florida man posing as a boondoggler. And there's like four white people right there and there's like one standing on like the bridge above and he's like looking down and they ask us like what are y'all doing here and I'm nervous because 
there's the whole COVID thing. And also this is like a well-to-do like white area in the South. And uh, I am like unmissably black. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I got super nervous and kind of like, I don't know, kind of like, you know, get tall. Like when you see a bear, like you just kind of get tall. And that's kind of the way I tell that story because there was just kind of like, there were more layers for me. Here's what I'm getting at. We both experienced the same faith. And we're telling these stories. And when we tell these stories, was there four people? Was there five? Does it matter? Were they 50 yards away, 100 yards away? Does it matter? Did they say it with a smile or did they say it with a scowl? Now that matters because it affects what I'm trying to relate to you. It informs the experience that I'm trying to offer you. And what I mean by that is when we consider stories and how stories help us understand things is it helps us mind the gap and understand that, yeah, there are things about this story that aren't worth checking up on. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. We all know those people who give way too many details through the story. You, know, you, could, have kept, you could have cut five minutes off of that. Because I just want the experience. I want the main thing. What are you trying to tell me? What do you think the Bible's trying to tell us? The Bible is a story. How does this work? What matters and what doesn't? How do we relate to it? Uh, in our teaching text, there's uh, this letter sent to Timothy. Timothy's this young pastor in the city uh, of Ephesus. And uh, he's leading this kind of cosmopolitan congregation. And he's getting his feet wet. And uh, we won't get into the debate about authorship. For the sake of this conversation, we'll say Paul. Paul is, is writing this letter to his protege, Timothy, uh, to let him need to know what he needs to know about being a pastor. And then near the end of this letter, he, he writes to him about the scriptures themselves. And here's what he says, starting off in verse 14. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Very interesting, that word there, uh, Holy Scriptures, uh, Gamata. it means sacred writings. You have known the sacred writings from your infancy. Now, think about these sacred writings, and we have to remember, at this time, the only, like, canonized, actually, form of the scriptures, the scriptures these things are referring to, are the Old Testament scriptures. They're not talking about the Gospels and the Epistles. Those aren't, don't, aren't yet in existence. Paul is writing to his, to his protege, and he's reminding them, hey, these scriptures that you've known, that, that you continue in because you've learned them from people, and you've known them since your, your, your infancy, these are the things you need to lean into. See, the Bible, the, this, particularly the Hebrew Bible, it's all stories. 
There's stories about how the world was formed. There's the stories about these, these people of God, the, the Israelites, and, and how they, they move throughout from oppression to fruitfulness with some wandering in between, and how they become a kingdom, and how they fall apart, and how these, these men try to remind them of their purpose, and then it kind of just ends. But it's all just, it's all stories. And what's underneath the words is a, is a bigger story, a story of a people. See, when the writers of the, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, started to compose these, these letters, they're not sitting out to write a Bible to be sold across the world. They're writing to encapsulate the stories as they move into exile, as they've been separated from all that they've known. And they're like, our, our, our kids' kids need to know who we are. We need to place them in the larger story of us as a people. This is why it includes the history, but this is also why it includes the songbook. These are our songs. And so this is what the scriptures are. They're a larger story. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he starts by reminding him, hey, there's a story of people that you know, your community. And also, these are the holy writings that you were born into. This is the story that you're in. A story of a chosen people and a God in relationship with them. Underneath the words is not just an invitation into a story, but there's an invitation into an identity with God others, and self. So if you jump to the end of 17, Paul talks a little bit more about the scriptures itself, but he says, following up from where he left off, you from infancy have been given these, these holy writings so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul is rooting Timothy in a story so that he can live out his new story. That word there, the servant of God, is not just talking about like everyone who's in God. It's actually referring to like vocational people in God, the man of God, the, the, the minister. Paul, Timothy is a young minister. And so Paul is saying, hey, this larger story that you've been placed in, it is helpful for you as you try to live out your calling, your relationship to the God you've given yourself vocationally to, and the life that you've chosen to live. So this larger story, this old story, informs your new story. This is what's underneath the words of these sacred writings. See, the stories of the written scripture, they help add color, robustness, or as Paul writes, a thorough equipping to Timothy's vocation as a servant of God. But what of the inspiration? Where does that come in? What make these writings sacred? For that, we kind of got to go to the middle of this. Paul, again, from infancy, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to that. But here's our functional phrase. All Scripture is God-breathed. Maybe in some translations it is read, all Scripture is inspired, but all Scripture is God-breathed. This word 
Theophneustos is a word that's a, it's a, it's a portmanteau. It's kind of two words, God and breathe, just shoved together, right? Paul probably created, more than likely created this word. It doesn't really exist outside of the scriptures. And this is the only time we find it in the scriptures. And that's interesting that Paul chooses to smash those two words together because, again, he's trying to evoke an experience. God breathe, well, God breathe is a, is a connection. It's an artifact of a greater experience. But what is that experience? Well, it's the beginning of the story. Genesis 2. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The experience that Paul is trying to root Timothy in, yes, it's this larger story, but there's a specific part of the story. It's, it's the movement of God and this first Adam, the one that God shaped and dirt and then breathe his life into. And so when, when Timothy reads that word, God breathe, he's taken back. He's taken back to sitting on his mother's lap and listening to the story again. In the beginning, there weren't any shrubs. And our God, Yahweh, he took dirt. He took dirt, little one, and he breathed into them. He breathed into the dirt. And that dirt, it started to live. And then there was a fruitful land, and the Lord took this man that he gave life, and he put, them, he put him in a garden to work, to exist in good harmony with creation and others in God, free of shame is how the story ends in chapter 2. Free of shame. But the story doesn't end there. And that also informs these scriptures. Because Adam, that first man, he has a choice of the story he wants to live in. Adam is breathed by God into a story of perfect connection, but he chooses that he doesn't want to keep that connection. And so he chooses to break communion when he breaks faith by eating the fruit he was forbidden to do so by going back on the one covenant, the one bond that was not to be crossed between him, his wife, and God. But that story carries forward even still because Timothy would also, would also know that there were going to be these, these prophecies of someone who would come that there would be a new Adam. <clears throat> that God would not leave the broken re relationships of Adam's choice, but that they would find themselves expressed. And what Timothy believes is that the one called Jesus, the one who came and he has heard stories of, that that man was the new Adam. That he contained the breath of life. 
Because remember, Paul is his mentor. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Roman church. He says in verse 5, If by the trespasses of the one man death reigned that that through one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Here it is. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Paul is making this connection that there's this first Adam and then there's this second Adam. That in Jesus... Jesus made the choice that Adam Adam didn't, where Adam decided he didn't want to stay in that story of good relationship. Jesus chose to stay in good relationship with the Father, with others, with creation, with himself. And in doing that, that opened up the ability for each of us to enter into a new story. So what does this have to do with the scriptures? Paul is telling Timothy, hey, this story, these scriptures, they're God-breathed because the whole point of them, the thing that's underneath all these words, is Jesus. TLDR, too long, didn't read? Jesus. He's the new Adam. He's God's breath. He's the word. But you don't got to take Paul's word for it. Listen to what Jesus says. John says in chapter 5 that Jesus says, You search the scriptures, speaking to the religious people of the time. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, don't you get it? How do you relate to all these words? Would you see it as a portrait of me? Would you see it as my story? As Ryan reminded us last time, what is the scripture but God's story? And what does Jesus do? but teach us a new humanity. To give us a new choice in the stories that we live. Jesus opens back up that original story. He doesn't do away with the old story. He opens it back up that we can choose again to live like Adam didn't, to be in relationship with God, creation, others, and ourselves. And so I wonder what that means for you. How do you relate to the scriptures. Excuse me. I know for me, I grew up in an environment where we related to the scriptures as a manual. This was how I was supposed to live life. But the thing about reading the scriptures in order to become biblical That only works if you were made to be a Bible. 
you weren't made to be a Bible. You were made to be a human. And so the invitation is to read the scriptures, not to be biblical, but to learn how to be human. We find that in Jesus, who shows us a new humanity. I love what M.T. Wright says. He says, inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were books God intended his people to have. And in and through it all, we find the elusive but powerful idea of God's word. Catch this not as a synonym for the written scriptures, but as a strange personal presence, creating, judging, healing, recreating. God does indeed speak through the scriptures, but we cannot reduce God's speech to scripture alone. It is as though the word of Yahweh is like an enormous reservoir full of creative divine wisdom and power into which the prophets and other writers tap by God's call and grace so that the word may flow through them to do God's work of flooding and irrigating his people. What N.T. Wright is saying there is that the scriptures fit into a myriad of ways in which God is expressing itself. But the primary way that God is expressed is through Jesus, which, yes, is found in the scriptures, but also we get to interact with Jesus here and now in life through the Spirit. This is why we have practices. Romans, Paul says that the the nature itself makes God clearly seen so that we can also learn of God by observing the world around us. The scriptures are but a piece of that pie, not the entire pie. Here's a final word. Here's what I want to get at. Ultimately, what I'm trying to express is that I believe the sacred texts are best to be understood as a story. Among many other modes of the same story, but not just any story, but the story of Jesus. The person of Jesus. And I believe it's best understood this way. Because here's the deal, and some of you might have to talk more about this later, and that's okay. I'm, happy. I'm, I'm fine to do that. The reality is the more time and study you invest in these pages, the more that you will find that this book, just like Adam, is the marriage of humanity and divinity. And here's what I mean by that. Wherever there is humanity, you will often find messiness, inconsistency and violence and I'm not speaking just of the content but also of its creation see the manuscripts of the Bible they're highly documented like the, the, the like there can be firm confidence that the manuscripts are authentic to the people who first wrote them and meticulously maintained them But when it comes to these manuscripts and their editing and their interpretation, choices have to be made. 
and those choices can create gaps. Worse than gaps, those choices can at times be the seedbed for real pain. Like the slave Bible, which was edited to omit 90% of the Old Testament, 50% of the New Testament, so that slaves wouldn't rebel. To them, their Bible was one of subjugation. There was a lot of gaps. Or places in some translations where gendered language is used where it's not found in the manuscript which in a charitable view would frame an orthodoxy consistent with the translator's male-dominated worldview. It happens. There are times where it says he that he doesn't exist, and it has implications. So what do we do with that? Like, does that make the Bible useless? Does it make it evil? Some would argue, yeah. I would say neither. Instead, I believe it requires us to use a deep humility and sobriety when we engage the secondary uses of Scripture. What do I mean by the secondary uses? Well, in the middle of our text, right after highlighting the primary understanding of Scripture as Adamic, good for knowing your salvation in Jesus, Paul tells Timothy that the sacred writings, and the, again, the Old Testaments, are helpful for a couple of things. Establishing right thinking, disputing poor thinking, correcting poor living, and training in healthy living. I'm going to say that again. Helpful, the scriptures are helpful for establishing right thinking, disputing poor thinking, it says rebuking, correcting poor living, he says correction, and training in healthy living. In other words, we are free, wise, and encouraged to use the scriptures to craft doctrine and derive ethics. But where our sobriety and humility must come into play is in the realization that if we do not have the primary purpose of the text, revealing Jesus, serving as a filter for all these other uses, we should abandon our cause. Here's what I mean by that. Growing up, we, uh, we didn't always have a can opener. We were like a weird kind of poor. Um, <laughs> but we would take a knife. We would take like, a, like one of the long like knives you like use to slice something, and we would use that to open a can. And we'd pop it in, and then you'd like seesaw it. I was with me, and you seesaw it around, and you open the can. A knife became a can opener. Give me the can opener, I'm going to hand you a knife. This was a secondary use of the knife. And it was very great. It saved us from not having to buy a can opener. But here's the thing. If you treated the knife just like a can opener that had all the plastic and the guards on it and forgot its primary use as a knife, you would end up with a bust open hand. Because it was made to be a knife, though it was helpful for other things. Likewise, if we come into the scriptures seeking doctrine and how people should live and what people should think, and we never run it through its filter of it revealing Jesus, we will bust people open. You've probably been bust open. 
It is serious business. So there are gaps because it's a story. Yeah, dates may not line up. There may be things you really have to wrestle with. But you have to ask yourself, well, how do I know? How do I know what's the main thing then? That seems pretty scary. Well, here's how you know. Does it reveal Jesus in a consistent and true way? Where you're like, well, I found out about Jesus through the scriptures, so if it's messed up, then how does that work? Well, that's because, again, it is but one modality. We experience Jesus in our lives. We experience Jesus in nature. We experience Jesus in community. And all those things work in harmony to reveal the person of Jesus. This is why you shouldn't read your Bible in a locked room. This is why it was given to be listened to in community. Last thing, I gotta, gotta wrap it up. There's a doctrine called the perspicuity of scripture. The perspicuity of scripture. Ironically, it means that scripture is clear. Um, the perspicuity of scripture means that scripture is clear in all the things that it's trying to say. And what it's ultimately trying to say is here is Jesus. Jesus is not hiding in the text. If there's one thing, I don't care where you turn to, almost every page you'll find him. But in these other areas, we have to use some humility and some sobriety and filter everything through Jesus so that we don't go astray. That is the God-breathed inspiration of Scripture. So here's the invitation. As we move towards worship and as our prayer team comes to meet you, I again ask, I wonder how you relate to Scripture. I wonder how you relate to this story. The story is a simple one. There's a Jesus who loves you and wants to teach you how to be human. So if you feel less than human, well, there's someone who's standing and identifying with you and wants to show you what it means to feel human. And have you been relating to scripture as a tool, as a manual? Is that how you've received it? Are you bleeding from that? Well, if so, I would just love to invite you to find some prayer to consider the story and how you relate to it. There'll be people here to pray for you. And we will, in a few, sing some songs. But where we'll start, and you can stand with me, is by coming to this table the reason why every week we end here is because this is the main thing. Everything we do, all the worship, all this stuff, leads us to this moment where we are reminded it's all about Jesus. His broken body and his shed blood given for us. That is the story. There is a table set for you 
all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, all those who hunger and thirst, they will be filled. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to come and be placed again in the story. Be placed again in the story of God. who's made his story about loving you. So, Lord Jesus, we come to the table to receive your sacrifice and to be reminded of just the kind of God you are. It testifies to you just as the scriptures do. So lead us now, Lord, into that old story being made new in and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Come and receive.